Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller-Karras. Welcome to Resiliency um, Within. I also want to let our listeners know we are also live streaming on Facebook on my Resiliency Within Facebook page. I am so excited to have my two guests today and to hear about the work and share their work with all of you. Um, My guests are Audrey Jean Stillerman and Bridget Gavigan, and they are going to discuss the Illinois ACES Response Collaborative. We're going to call it the Collaborative for short. And this is a mouthful. The Center for Collaborative Study of Trauma, Health Equity, and Neurobiology. And we're going to talk about this as then. The organizations have been working for over a decade to transform organizations and systems through a trauma-informed, resiliency-building, and healing-centered policies and practices. It's so important that when we have learned about ACEs and the impact on individuals that we look at systems. And I think these this is one of the organizations and the collaboration between the two that are doing just that. So it's a cross-sector movement to prevent trauma and promote thriving across the lifespan. The collaborative places the impact of childhood experiences on well-being at the forefront of the equity agenda in Illinois. It leads trainings, advocates for policy change, and translates research for the public, the policymakers, and partner organizations. This is that systemic change that I was I, I mentioned earlier. The collaborative convenes a working group of Chicago, Chicago hospital representatives championing trauma-informed transformation with their systems. And in 2021, the collaborative released an action plan that I'm hoping to hear more about um, and released the action plan um, to address childhood adversity in Illinois. Um, so they, de- they developed this through a multi-sector strategic planning process with leaders and community members across the straight, across the state. The collaborative is now leading efforts to implement the action plan. And then, then is a virtual nonprofit of clinicians, educators, researchers, activists pursuing health equity and justice for all. And then works to transform healthcare health professional training, and then also designs and delivers curricula that translates the science connecting life experiences and health into prevention and healing theory and practice with a particular focus on individual patient care. So let me tell you a little bit about both of these amazing women. And I also want you all to know that you can go to the Resiliency Within um, Voice America page to learn more about them because they have really done some amazing things in their life, but let me just give you a brief bio for each one. So Dr. Silverman is an integrative family physician and clinical assistant professor of family and community medicine at the University of Illinois in Chicago. She's also the medical director for the Miles Square School Health Center program, where she leads the clinical work of five school health centers, offering integrated medical and behavioral health services. I also want to say she serves. I love. I love this about you. You're a clinician, an educator, a researcher, an administrator, <laughs> and that activist part, which I think you have to be to bring this forward. But she's also 
a Community Resiliency Model Ambassador and Phase 2 Certified in the Child Trauma Academy's Neurosequential Model of Therapeutics. Um, she's the co-founder of the Center for the Collaborative Study of Trauma, the then um, um, program that we talked about, and she is also um, and also the advisory council member of the Illinois ACES Response Collaborative. So Bridget is the director of the Illinois ACES Response Collaborative at Health and Medicine Policy Research Group. The collaborative, you know, we've already talked about what that is, but Bridget is has led um, in the past a national initiative to build stronger support for human services through evidence-based communication strategies. Um, and she was a previous dir director of the Prevent Child Abuse America's Public Policy Program and a member of the public policy team at the United Way of America. Phew, ladies, that is a lot. <laughs> Let's get to talking about you two. So I want to start out with asking a little bit about your personal stories. And so what prompted you to decide to spend really a, a it's clear that you're, I think, can I say that you're kind of passionate about the work that you're doing? Mm -hmm. And sometimes when we have that kind of passion, there was a reason for it. So I'm going to ask um, Audrey to go first, and then I'll ask Bridget second. So Audrey, do you want to share a little bit about your story about what brought you to this work? Sure. Thanks, Elaine. Um, so I come from kind of a non-traditional household. Um, my father was very, he was a musician, not a physician, but he was very interested in prevention and kind of alternative healing. And so when I went to medical school, I was always kind of seeking out things that weren't just about prescribing pills or diagnostic tests or surgery. And I also was very close with an aunt who was a psychologist. So I was, I think, aware uh, about the mind-body connection. Um, and I also, I trained at Cook County Hospital. Most of my career has been in the public sector. And so I was very interested in questions about social justice and fairness. And a colleague of mine, um, who was one of my then co-founders, Dr. Patricia Rush, introduced me to the Adverse Childhood Experiences study about 2010 or so. And when I learned about that study, I just about fell over because I had been observing in my clinical practice for many years this phenomenon that I could not put my hands on. Um, often there would be people who looked like maybe they should be doing about the same, but they weren't. And I couldn't figure out why. And I knew there was something sort of behind the curtain. Um, and so when I read the ACE study, I knew that this was at least a piece of it that people's experiences in childhood were getting embodied and they were affecting their physiology and so their physical health, their mental health and their social well-being. Um, and I felt uh, empowered by that. I felt annoyed that that hadn't been part of my medical training. And I also felt really deeply committed to trying to figure out a way to infuse that in my clinical practice, in my teaching, um, and later in some of the research um, that I've been doing, and so so that's sort of the that's sort of the beginning. And I've been thrilled to learn, uh, you know, recently about the emergence of the work on positive childhood experiences, and also the connection between um, sort of the health equity movement and um, child trauma prevention. 
Yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's so interesting that you bring that. That was when you read the study in 2010. I read it like in the late 90s when I was teaching family medicine. And it was like an amen, hallelujah moment, I call it, because I thought, oh my, someone's written about it. I've seen it. I've, you know, I've talked about it, but I didn't have the language nor the research to say, of course this happens. And of course it affects every part of human existence, including our immune system and our mental health. So um, anyway, I didn't know that about you, Audrey, and I, I, I just love that connection. So but I want to ask Bridget the same thing. I mean, so Bridget, you know, what came, what, what brought you to the work? What was it that was your journey that brought you to the work that you're doing? I'll talk a little bit about both the kind of professional and the personal aspects that contributed. Um, so when I was at Prevent Child Abuse America, doing public policy at the federal level, uh, that's when I first learned about the ACEs study and first started using it in our advocacy and, and communications with policymakers. And, you know, one of the challenges we always had, I always had, we'd go in and say, you know, I'm with Prevent Child Abuse America. And immediately people would default to, oh my goodness, those parents are so terrible and they're monsters and we've got to take the kids away. And it was really impossible from that position to get them to think about things like family support and home visiting and, you know, financial supports that can keep families intact. So the ACEs study really disrupted that in ways that I found actually surprising when it happened. I think people could really see and relate to both their own experiences um, and then understand a little more fully, you know, that, that this is something that, that has long-term implications. It's not just one kind of intervention in one moment um, that's going to, you know, solve this challenge. So, so I, I saw that people would really connect to this work and, and, and that it could lead people to more productive solutions than where they were headed. And then for myself personally, it really helped me understand some, some family dynamics um, from growing up. So, you know, growing up, um, I had a grandmother who had very serious mental illness, and I saw the strain that that put on my mom as she was, you know, constantly trying to get my, my grandmother to, to get help, get support, get treatment, manage the symptoms, and by the very nature of the mental illness, um, she would not. And, you know, I would get so frustrated as a child with my grandma, so frustrated. Why isn't she just taking these steps? This would make everything better. So when I learned about, so I'll say like simultaneously, I would also hear these stories about my my grandmother's upbringing. And, and it was tough. It was tough. She had to leave school when she was 12 and start working full time to support the family. Her parents died when she, you know, when she was 18, and she had to take responsibility for raising her youngest brother while her sisters were sent to other families. Um, she had some trauma around interactions with doctors, and it really clicked for me, and it helped me. It really changed how I thought about my grandma. It made me feel so much more compassion for what she had gone through as a child, and, and it really helped me understand, you know, how that kind of turned up for her as an adult in some of these ways. So, so there's the professional and there's the personal aspect that, that kind of bring me to this work. Well, and I think that I, I love that you brought in that compassion piece, because when we have a lack of understanding about like mental health conditions, you know, sometimes there is a lot of judgment about why don't they just snap out of it? You know, mm -hmm. things haven't been that bad. And then when we started learning, you know, as Audrey pointed out from the ACEs study, um, 
the things that can happen in someone's life that can lead to this, you know, plethora of conditions. Because I think what I liked also about ACEs, you know, they just asked those 10 questions. Have you ever had a parent that had this, had you ever experienced this? Because it wasn't saying, did you ever have trauma? Because many people would answer that as, no, I didn't have trauma because they just thought it was life, right? And so I think that was that was a game changer. So let me ask you now, like kind of move into um, the history of the collaborative and the then center. So can you tell us a little bit about the origins of it? How did it come to be? Um, and whichever one of you wants to start first. Bridget, do you want to talk about the collaborative and then I because. No, sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah. No, I'm happy to. So, yes. Um, so the collaborative is it's a program of an organization called Health and Medicine Policy Research Group, and this is an organization that is deeply concerned with health equity. Um, really puts health equity and social justice at the core of everything that it does. You know, can and, you something I'm going to ask you because sometimes people hear health equity, they may not know what that means. What does yeah. health equity mean? So, I mean, it's really that we value and provide supports, whether that's through doctors, through, you know, social supports, through how our communities are designed, through housing, to prioritize everyone's health in equitable ways and to address um, historical inequities that have created health disparities. So... When, you know, the founders of the collaborative learned about the ACEs study, this is in the kind of late, around 2010, 2009, 2010, um, they really saw that, that it was not just about health inequities, it was about trauma inequities as well. And trauma's contributions to health inequities over the long term. So um, they came together to form a multi-sector uh, approach to addressing trauma. Um, they wanted to look beyond your sort of traditional, um, you know, when people think about health, they think about hospitals. So certainly that's important. But what does it look like in schools? What does it look like um, in justice? And, um, you know, what does it look like? And how does it manifest over the course of a life? So uh, really started coalescing then around those strategies that you talked about, education and awareness, capacity building, policy and advocacy work, research, translation and dissemination. Uh, so that's really kind of the origin story, I think, here at Health and Medicine for the collaborative. And then what? And then what about the then center? So yeah, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But I want to add a couple things to okay, go ahead, um, sure. The collaborative and health and medicine. So um, the first accomplishment of the collaborative was actually to talk the Illinois Department of Public Health into including uh, the ACE module. So ACEs questions in uh, a survey, a phone survey that many states give. It's a CDC-directed phone survey. And so nobody had ever asked those questions in Illinois before, and the collaborative was responsible for making that happen in 2013. Um, I also wanted to say about health and medicine. Health and medicine was um, started by kind of a local rock star doctor um, named Quentin Young, uh, who walked with Dr. King, and he was the head of Cook County Hospital and kind of was there in the heyday of, of big activism at our county hospital. And he's also connected to important journalists at Northwestern. So health and medicine has a 40 plus year history here in Chicago. It's really an important kind of healthcare related think tank. And my relationship with health and medicine actually goes back um, 
maybe to early when I was in medical school or perhaps, yeah, I think it was probably then. So Margie Schaps, who's the executive director of health and medicine now, um, at the time was the director of uh, a clinic called, oh God, I think Women's Health Resources at, at a local hospital. And she was friends with one of my cousins. Um, and so I, I met her then. Um, and then when I was a fourth year medical student, I actually did a, an elective rotation at health and medicine when, when uh, Dr. Young was still around. So, um, so anyway, so I have connections with health and medicine that predate any of this stuff. But around 2013, Margie and I happened to be at the same meeting of the Healthy Schools campaign. And I reached out to her afterwards and I said, Margie, you know, there's this thing that I think that, you know, you should get involved with. It, you know, it's this work about childhood adversity and healing, et cetera. And she said, well, actually, you know, we're working on this, infusing these questions into the survey. And I was like, oh, great. And then about a year later, another colleague of ours at the Chicago Department of Public Health, who I had been starting to have conversations with around this, said, you know, there are these people working on this that you really need to um, connect with. And of course, it was the collaborative. And so I started working on uh, this kind of policy, public awareness um, work with the collaborative in about 2014. And then we started uh, the then center in 2017. And of course, invited Margie to sit on our advisory panel. Um, and so there's, and there've been other ways that we've collaborated over the years too. It's been a really positive relationship on both sides. So there had been a lot of foundational work that had been done in other kind of areas that kind of all came together to create this. Would that be a correct statement? Yeah. Okay, great. And so is there anything more that you want to say about the then center? Um, Sure. So um, the the center actually emerged um, from our frustration with the medical system and its its blinders um, about really, again, the, the brain-body connection and uh, understanding about embodiment and, and what to do about it. And so um, some colleagues and I just decided we had had enough. We'd all been working together a long time, again, back to the county hospital. Many of us had, had met there that we really wanted to just start preparing curricula, teaching people about this in a more formal way, and just kind of shaking it up and hopefully sparking uh, what we wanted, which was a revolution, excuse me, in healthcare thinking and practice. Um, And we set a very ambitious goal for ourselves, which was that by 2025, every medical school would be teaching about trauma and healing. I don't think we're going to quite make that, but there's some really exciting things. But you're close. I hope that you're close. Yeah, we have a, we have three years, but um, but anyway, so so yeah, so we can, we convene very intentionally uh, an advisory panel that is multi generational. It's multidisciplinary and interprofessional. Um, it is very diverse in terms of race, um, and it's been a really exciting experience getting to think about and and work with uh, really fantastic people from. Uh, from around the city and also um, other places in the country as well. Um, and so we, um, 
I'm still working on my my own medical school. Um, although I this week, literally yesterday, I got an email from some of the medical students saying, you know, we really we really want to do this. We're really ready. So um, so hoping that their voice and my voice might combine together to begin to infuse um, the science and the practice, the application. Uh, about you know both how we can prevent. Audrey, it's gonna it's gonna happen. Are you kidding? I know. It's I, happen. <laughs> so good. Well, thank you for your optimism. No, I, well, I, you know, I think you know, it is too. Well, you know, one of the thing, one of the quotes, and you know, I think I don't think it's overused. I've heard it a million times, and I'm going to use it again. You know, is Margaret Mead's quote that never never underestimate the power of a small group of people to change the world. And so I think you got your small group already. So let's see what happens there at your at your medical school. So let me ask, let me that kind of segues into another question I have for the two of you. So how did the two organizations start to collaborate? How did that come to be? Well, so um, so I started to work with the collaborative in about 2014, and we were preparing for, there were a few years that there was a Midwest ACE Summit, sort of the public health region was hosting a convening um, for professionals and community members. And I started to work on that. And I've really been doing various projects since then with the collaborative. Um, and then, um, as I mentioned, Margie sits on our advisory panel. And so she <clears throat> has offered all kinds of things. Just one of the kind of more recent and concrete things was uh, we had a public health student who wanted to do an internship with us at then. And we didn't have a way of, um, anyway, we, we didn't have the infrastructure to, to host her. And, and we needed another organization to do it. And so Margie was um, able to, to be that you know, organization and, and allow us to host the public health student. But there have been many other things, too. That we've and is there anything you want to add to that, Bridget, to what um, in terms of the collaboration? I think I think Audrey's captured it well at the collaboration with then. And of course, Audrey's very involved in the collaborative, even beyond her role in then. Um, including, you know, she she chairs a, a working group that we convene of hospitals in the region um, and champions within those hospitals who who want to imbue them with trauma informed policies and principles. So, uh, no one more dedicated than Dr. Silverman to this work. Wow, that's that's quite a compliment there. Um, so, let me move into another question and. I imagine that people that are listening must say, well, what, what are you doing? What are the strategies for this transformative work? Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of the um, strategies that you're using that's beginning to make this change? Yeah, I, I mean, I could start and then, and then toss it to Audrey. I mean, I think a really important part of our, our strategic work is in you know, educating the public, policymakers, leaders in various seeker, uh, sectors, um, both around what ACEs are, because that's still an ongoing, you know, conversation with folks, what their implications are, but then more importantly, what are some things that we can be doing to, you know, prevent these situations from happening in the first place, mitigate and buffer against the potential long-term harms, shift our culture, um, at our organizations and in our communities to be more centered on healing um, and less centered on, you know, punitive efforts to kind of control behaviors. Um, so to me, that is, you know, core 
to the work that we will always be doing at the collaborative going forward is that sort of education and support. You know, we know this is a problem and here are some ways that we can start addressing it together in whatever setting you happen to be in, in whatever role you happen to play within an organization or community. Well, I know that, you know, when you had mentioned the positive childhood experiences um, and there's been, you know, research saying that when you can create positive childhood experiences for kids that are living in traumatic situations, it can mitigate some of the impacts of the ad- adverse child experiences. So are there any specific things that you're doing and, you know, in terms of, you know, children's clubs or trying to bring in adult mentors? I mean, are there things like that that you're doing in the community that maybe someone in another state might be listening to right now and go, well, I think we could do that. I don't know. So, so yeah, so I can I can talk a little bit about that. And I just want to say too, you know, positive childhood experiences, yes, they mitigate adversity and they're actually critically important in and of themselves. They're really primary prevention. Um, there is a really nice paper um, by uh, Dr. Bruce Perry, who's a child psychiatrist, um, about what happens when you have a positive, very early childhood, sort of late uh, intrauterine period and the first couple months of life and what your health trajectory is versus if you have a rough start and then you have positive experiences. And if your beginning is positive, you're go- even though you may face some difficulties, you're going, you know, on average, you're going to be in a much better place than somebody who's had a very challenging beginning. But in terms of what are we doing? So one of of the things that we're doing in my um, sort of home department, which is the Office of Community Engagement and Neighborhood Health Partnerships at, at UIC, is we're beginning to try to talk very loudly and figure out how to um, ignite opportunities for universal basic income for our uh, the people that we're serving. And one teeny little way that we're doing this, we got a grant from the Illinois Children's Healthcare Foundation um, to support the mental health of children and families. And so we asked to use part of that money to actually give people um, food gift cards, just because, not like tied to anything. We also um, have studied with you, Elaine, uh, the community resiliency model, and we're offering lessons for um, the students in our school health centers and also uh, their families and uh, you know anybody who works at the school and anybody in the community. We're trying to sort of, again, drive it in and fuse it in so that this becomes the language that people use and the skills that they know how to use. So they can um, they can learn an array of wellness 100%, skills. 100%. Exactly. exactly. Have that body literacy, read their nervous system, and be able to come back that's and right. do that's, that's right. That's okay. That's right. Yeah. And, and I think those kinds of things are kind of small, but they can lead to bigger change. Well, and I, that's right. Yeah. That's what we're hoping. And, and Bridget, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about policy stuff before the break or because that's a big thing, I think, of what you've been working on. You know, what we can do is we can wait till after the break, um, Bridget, for you to talk about the policy change. Sure. Because, you know, I, I think that's the important thing that I've learned about systems. You know, as a as an old trauma therapist, I worked with individuals. I also worked with communities. But without the policy that really can stem from research like ACEs, then we can have the, the financial 
right? Um, assets to be able to affect change. So I think that's such an important part, Bridget. So I really want to give it the time that we need to um, after the break. So I want to let all of our Voice America listeners know that after the break that Bridget's going to talk more about that kind of system change, but we have a lot more to talk about um, with what is happening in Illinois. And also to give some ideas too about, I always ask this question about how do you bring people together? You know, you have a collaborative, you've got the then But, you know, you may be in some people who are listening, maybe in communities go, I can't imagine getting anybody together in a room because everybody's always fighting with one another for the limited resources that they have. So I think that might be a good thing for us to also continue with. So we will be back in just a couple of minutes and we will continue this lively conversation and very important conversation with Audrey Stillerman and Bridget Gavkin. Be back in just a couple of minutes. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller-Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine Miller-Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine Miller-Karis. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Dr. Audrey Stillerman and Bridget Gavigan. They are from the wonderful state of Illinois, and they are talking to us about adverse child experiences and the collaborative and then, um, which are wonderful um, systemic, I don't know, organizations trying to um, 
bring more healing to their community and transformation. So um, right before the break, we were talking about um, system change and policies. And so Bridget's going to tell us a little bit more about policy. And then um, Audrey's going to talk to us a little bit too about, well, if someone's had trauma, how does that affect their provider's care of you? And if you can give us some ideas about that as well, Audrey, that I think that would be helpful. So Bridget, you first. So what about policy? Yeah, no, I think this is a good time to talk about the the statewide plan for addressing childhood adversity yes. in Illinois that we um, developed alongside um, a statewide working group that included, you know, uh, physicians, it included uh, folks from the education field, from justice, it included parents from communities. Um, and what we did over the course of 10 months through, you know, conversation, through surveys, through focus groups, is we really winnowed in on five planks that we think are necessary to address if Illinois is really going to move the needle on addressing childhood adversity. So that was, you know, plank one, trauma-informed policymaking. So what would it look like to actually take the principles from SAMHSA being trauma-informed, collaboration, safety, choice, um, honoring culture, and develop and design our policies through that lens. Um, the collaborative has actually developed a tool, a rubric to help kind of think that through. Um, the second plank was around st improving state level coordination. So, you know, looking at, there's a lot of work and interest happening around ACEs and trauma across the state, but could we be doing a better job of moving in the same direction together, of tracking that work together, of coordinating that work in a more meaningful way? Um, our third plank was around education and awareness and advocacy. So, you know, continuing to um, expand the tent of folks who see and understand this work and prioritize this work. Uh, we have a plank on data collection and accessibility. So what kind of information do we have in Illinois about adverse childhood experiences and also about positive childhood experiences? And how can we use that data to understand where we can best direct our resources? Um, and then finally, you know, really thinking about uh, trauma-informed practice metrics. How do you know as an organization, as a community, that you are moving in the right direction when it comes to trauma-informed transformation? What is your framework? How are you measuring it? How are you evaluating over time? So those are the sort of, in some cases, uh, public policy, in some cases, organizational policy pieces um, that we think can have a real meaningful impact long term. And so, Bridget, did you kind of want to have like a one-shop stopping that you would be like the, the repository of all these information having to do with the plank so people wouldn't have to reinvent evaluations or the different things that your, you know, working groups were coming together to create? You know, I think that there's there has been a lot of conversation about having some kind of hub in Illinois that is a, a place where folks can go, that where they can find different frameworks, they can find... Um, tools and resources, they can find trainings, they can have some common definitions. And I think that's where we're headed. Um, but I, I, I don't think we're quite there yet. But this is something that the the, the action plan imagines is, po is possible and would really make a big difference. And so when you, you know, recognized you had these five planks. Yeah. So did you have working groups that looked at each plank and then what to do about each plank? Is that how you conceived it? That's exactly how we did it. Um, we uh, the themes around you know these five planks emerged pretty quickly in our conversations with the statewide working group, um, and we really, in order to dive 
more deeply and understand what some action steps were, uh, we formed subgroups around each of those planks. And we made sure that each of those subgroups included parents from the community who could make sure that their expertise was forefront and center in the conversations that we had. Uh, and, you know, that's what helped us think through, like, what are some specific concrete next steps that, that we can take um, to move the needle on any one of these planks? Well, the other question I have for you, you say you have people from justice that are involved. And, you know, I often think about, so how are they involved in this? And, and um, you know, I, I, can, I have some ideas about this, but, you know, why are they involved? How are they yeah. involved? Because I could certainly see where the behaviors that result from adverse child experiences can end you in the court system. So help me understand how they've been involved and what's, what have been the insights or ahas about having justice involved. So I think, um, well, I won't speak to everyone's motivations. I was really from a preventative standpoint for the most part. This is what mostly in my experience inspires folks who are within justice. How can we keep kids from entering into the juvenile justice system? How can we keep, how can we reduce the, the you know, number of people who are incarcerated? So it's really around ACEs as a way of responding to trauma and ACEs in the community before it leads to behaviors that might land something about prevention. Yeah. And then, okay, this is the system we have. How can we reduce the trauma that happens within that system? How can we pro promote healing within those systems so that folks are able to enter back into their communities and have community and have connections, have work? Uh, so that I think goes to it's prevention, but then within the system and construct that we have right now, how can we uh, reduce traumatization within those systems? How can we promote healing? And how can we make a goal to be that, that folks are re-entering their communities, um, you know, having had some healing? Well, and you may not know the answer to this question, but I'm always interested. And just like I asked you when we started out, well, what prompted you both to get involved in the work that you're doing? And sometimes I've seen in justice and in law enforcement that oftentimes people get into those fields because of the traumas that they've experienced. Mm -hmm. And so then you think about then how you systemically will change something that are caring for children now who've had adverse child experiences if we're looking at juvenile justice systems, mm -hmm. but they're being cared for by the very folks who also had trauma in their childhoods that went into different ways. And I wonder, are there conversations that are happening about that and looking at everyone in terms of healing, not only the ones that are That's kind right. of as one person who I love, um, Reggie McNeil in um, North Carolina says an opportunity um, um, uh, adolescent at, at opportunity rather than at risk adolescent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, first of all, yes, I hate the framing of at risk. Um, <laughs> so, you know, but you're, you, you're right. I mean, we all enter our workplaces with our full experiences, um, informing how we show up. And so when we're working with organizations or institutions, you know, it's not just about how, um, your your relationship is or what questions you're asking your patients or how you're treating the folks who are, you know, part of your programs, what does it look like for your coworkers and colleagues? What does healing look like for the folks who are also walking in likely with some trauma or adversity in their background? Because we know it's common. So we can assume without having to ask that it's very likely that you are working with folks who are, you know, bringing their lived experiences that include some trauma in the background. So you really can't have it be one or the other. Right, you have, have to, to be comprehensive. Everyone, right. kind of right. 
Well, this kind of segues me over to Audrey again in terms of family medicine. Um, Many of my listeners know that I was a teacher of family medicine. It was really one of the catalysts for me to start thinking about the community resiliency model because I was the behavioral science faculty. So I would co-attend with the medical faculty. The young resident or intern would bring us there the case that they had just, you know, did their evaluation and say, Mrs. So-and-so insomnia plan Ambien. And so then my job was to say, hmm, I wonder what's going on with Mrs. So-and-so. Maybe you need to go back in there and find out what's going on in her life. We use this very simple thing called the bathe technique to help the young doctors be able to start those conversations. And you know the answer. Invariably, trauma, sun sent to a rock, um, um, drive-by shooting, domestic violence, um, worried about a child that was using drugs, whatever it may be. It was so trauma related. And then if we talked about that person's individual life story, it was riddled with all sorts of things that happened to them. And then, you know, one of the things that Audrey, you may know this, is that me as a behavioral scientist, you know, when they were interns are going, oh, why do we have to talk to the behavioral scientists? We want to do real medicine. And then usually after about two months, they'd be knocking on my door saying, Elaine, I've got this patient I don't know what to do with. But I really, I know that you are really interested in and you mentioned this about if we know what is a trauma-informed approach as a medical provider. I think every physician, every person on the globe needs to know about that, even to seek one out to find the right person. So over to you, and I can't wait to hear what you have to say no, about it. Absolutely. Well, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that you, you said that phrase, real medicine, and, and what we know now with decades and decades of hard science is that this is the real medicine. And what's so exciting about it is that it is connected really to millennia of empiric observation. Uh, it's very powerful. Um, and what we know is that the experiences that we have of all kinds get picked up by our senses and they're sent as information to our brains. And our brain interprets what those experiences mean and then sends messages to our body and the body sends messages back. So if we have too many bad things and not enough good things, the kind of signals that are being sent back and forth are signals that get us prepared to survive, that get us prepared to fight infection, that is inflammation. And if we don't have rest from those and they go on too long or they're too frequent, makes us sick. And as you both said before, these kinds of experiences um, without enough rest, without enough positive are extremely common. We know across the world that at least two thirds of people have had one of these experiences. And if you, if you have a kind of a more open book than the 10 ACEs, almost everybody's had one and many, many people have had more than their share. So then when somebody shows up in my office and they're not 100%, you know, well, well, I already know. I don't have to ask any questions. But I might want to ask an open-ended question, like, how was growing up for you? Or even tell me about the highs and lows of your life. And then the person has the opportunity to disclose or not. And if they don't, or if they tell me growing up was kind of difficult, I already know the answer, and then I can invite them to tell me when they're ready. 
But as I said, we know that when we have too much difficult stuff and not enough good stuff, particularly if it happens early on, and again, those experiences can be experiences that happen in the family, they can be experiences from the community, they can be structural experiences, or they can be historical experiences. But when that is the case, our ability to balance our physiology is not as strong. And so our approach really needs to be partnering with this person in front of them, in front of us, making them really the center, making their agenda the center, and beginning to co-create a regimen that helps to restore that physiologic balance. So making sure that they have enough to eat and housing and a safe place to live, making sure that they're getting enough sleep, that they have positive relationships, that they have things that they enjoy, uh, that they're finding meaning and purpose, that they can move their bodies. And there's so many things kind of in our regular life, including things like washing the dishes, um, but things that are, that are pleasant, they're often relational, they're repetitive, they're culturally relevant. But these are the things that really help to prevent problems and help us heal. Um, you know, we definitely need policy. We definitely need organizational transformation. And there are these things that are part of everyone's everyday life that we can help to string together to support wellness. This does not mean um, that, you know, if we're bleeding out, you know, we were in a, a car accident or something that we, we don't use Western medicine also. But these are the things that really help Western medicine work or sometimes work better than Western medicine. People get better when you use these strategies. Well, and I think that, you know, what you're talking about too is, you know, I, I can remember people talking about the bread and butter of family medicine. People would come in with headaches. They'd come in with back aches. They'd come in with stomach aches, can't sleep, um, all those kinds of things. And then not necessarily looking at the root cause or having the conversation. To me, I'm hearing you doing a deep listening to people as they're coming in, because we know if we can socially engage with them, then they're more likely to be able to tell us the truth about their journeys that may have been very difficult. And oftentimes, you as the family um, physician or nurse practitioner may be the very first person that they've ever, ever revealed what's truly happened to them. And yes, exactly. And, you know, the thing I want to add, one of the things that comes up all the time is, well, we don't have, you know, doctors always say we don't have time to talk to patients. So when we're in primary care, it doesn't all have to happen in one visit. So this can be a longitudinal conversation that goes on over time. And if we know what we're looking for when we walk in the room, it takes us a lot less time to actually get to the answer. So, so having this science as part of our you know, upbringing, as part of our foundation, really helps us quickly figure it's like out. Having, it's like the window that you look That's at right. the patient through. And if you have that, then like you said, oh, if I know that they've already have this, I'm going to have a higher index of suspicion that they have an adverse child experience. But one of the things I was hoping that we would talk a little bit about, I remember working in family medicine, I felt that I was naive at the degree of um, food insecurity that there exists. And honestly, it was like... Uh, I'm very fortunate to have lived in a middle-class family that we did. We always had enough food to eat, but I worked in a, in a county um, in San Bernardino County where people would come in and sometimes they didn't have enough food. And I know that there's, there's some research that you had shared with me about money and pregnant women. And I, and that sounds kind of funny what I just said, but can you talk a little bit about that, Audrey? 
Sure, sure. Well, I want to just say too about the food insecurity. I, I'm sure the listeners have been catching this on the news, but you know the extra money for food that was um, appropriated during the pandemic is it going away and about to completely go away unless we do something about it. And um, there are many, many, many families with children and elders who don't make enough money to feed themselves. So this is a real thing. And imagine being hungry all the time. Um, how could you possibly think, work, relate, anything? So, you know, hungry. Study, is, go to school. Exactly. You know, exactly. A lot of people have school, you know, lunch programs, but that lunch program may be the only food for the entire day. That That's right. That's right. Um, and, you know, we, we all need to meet, uh, eat, and our, I think our country really needs to make feeding its citizens a priority. Um, what you're referring to, though, Elaine, is there was a study, I think it came out probably mid-2022, looking at um, the infant brain development in relation to pregnant women and postpartum women see, receiving guaranteed income. And it wasn't very much money. I mean, it was like a few hundred dollars a month. But receiving that money helped infants' brains grow better, more than for families who did not receive that money. That's huge. You know, so if we're really committed to giving children a good start, we need to make sure that we support their parents both in terms of money and food. And by the way, the research on guaranteed income is that people use it to buy food and they use it to buy other necessities. They, they're not, you know, going gambling or something like that. And so this is a really uh, very promising policy initiative in terms of getting us out of the hole we're in, which is with one of the worst health records in the entire developed world. And not just for people who are poor, for all of us. We're not doing very well for, you know, people with means either. Well, I think that's, I mean, I think what I think is important about what you said, I could hear people say, oh, well, if you're going to give them money, how do you know that they're really spending it on something that is about taking care of themselves and their baby? But what you're saying is that the research showing that's the, what that is what they're doing. Because, you know, hunger is a primary need. Right. And if your body is gnawing and because you're really on the verge of hunger and starvation, that is going to be something that's going to propel you to try to get the food at the grocery store, the 99 cent store, wherever you can do that. And I, I think we're, we underestimate the needs of that in our country. So, so with all this information that, we're, that you both are collecting, and I know you're working very hard to do in Illinois, what have been some of the challenges that you've experienced in, in your clear passion and commitment to this? So whichever one of you wants to go first. I can start and then I'd love to hear from Audrey about it. I think, you know, a challenge that we have is, um, you know, people get excited and they get interested when they hear about this work. Um, but we are talking about deep uh, cultural shifts and deep policy shifts. And that takes sustained effort um, and commitment and resources. And so where we run into challenges is, you know, 
getting people to commit to that long-term view and getting people to commit to applying the resources to this work that are required. I would, I would put those at the top of the list. Audrey, I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Yes, I, I think you're absolutely right, um, Bridget. And I want to add uh, one other thing too. You know, it's hard to change. And particularly in our various sectors, we're very, um, we're dedicated to the way that we learn things and the way that we do things. And this work doesn't allow us to look away. And so it's painful. Um, and also, if we say, oh, God, you know, uh, we didn't learn it the way that it actually is. Like, what does that mean about our training and what are we supposed to do about it now? So I think that there's a lot, there's a big emotional component um, to this as well uh, as the very important pieces that Bridget raised um, which is you know like how long is this going to take anyway and how much is it going to cost um, and and so these are you know these are the things that we sort of are confronting all the time now that also is to say there are a number of incredibly dedicated people who have been doing this work for years. Um, and Bridget, you know, I, I hope you'll talk a little bit about the uh, county hospital video because I feel like that was a that was a really big win that we were very privileged to see recently. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. So Cook County Health, biggest hospital system um, in the the state, um, one of the biggest in the nation. So they have been for years, um, there's been a group, an internal working group who's been thinking about what it would mean for this system to be trauma informed. And they um, were able to engage their leaders and get buy-in to the extent that it is now part of their strategic plan. And as part of that, they are rolling out over the next year um, trainings that will be mandatory for every staff person from, you know, head physicians to environmental staff um, to, you know, the folks that are greeting you at reception around the fundamentals of trauma and trauma-informed care. And they developed a really wonderful video that outlines um, very cleanly what their case is for it, why they're doing it. So staff understand that this isn't just some arbitrary, you know, requirement that we have of you. This is really, we need everyone's buy-in and engagement to, to truly make this. That is truly exciting. And I'm looking, I cannot believe our time is quickly slipping away, but I'm going to call that your, your, your final comment, Bridget, because <laughs> I guess it's getting systems to change and actually investing in a, for the entire system to learn about trauma-informed care. Mm-hmm. So, I'm kind of summarizing what you just talked about. And Audrey, what would you like to say as your final words to our audience today? So, so I want to add just two more details to that. And that is, um, this video is not a secret. There is a web page about trauma-informed care on, on the county hospitals organizational page, and the video is there. So it's very public. And the other thing that I am very appreciative of is that this effort was co-led by physicians and behavioral health people. So it Yay. really, yes, exactly, exactly. So I think what I what I want to say, Elaine, um, is that um, as human beings, we all have the potential for healing and wellness. And we really have that potential when we work together and care for each other. 
Um, so regardless of our race and our religion and all this kind of stuff. So, so I really believe that, you know, we can be the change that we want to see um, and we can do it together. All right. Thank you so much, both of you, um, Bridget Gavigan and Dr. Audrey Stillerman for coming and sharing your wisdom. And so one of you just, if people want to get in touch with you, give me one website for people to go to. We have like about a minute left. So what's the website? Go ahead, Bridget. So the website for health and medicine is where you should, you should go, www.hmprg.org. H-M-P-R-G And anything else, Audrey, another website or is that it? Yeah, so our website is thencenter.info at gmail.com. Thencenter at info. So thencenter.info. Thencenter.info. All right. So my audience, um, you have listened to two dynamic women who are changing the state of Illinois, along with a lot of collaborators. And I hope that you have um, learned some words of wisdom. And I, I often end the show with what else is true. Yes, there's trauma, but there's also people working very hard collaboratively to bring health and transformation and remembering that mind-body connection. And when we have collaboration, I'm going to just end with that too, between medicine and behavioral scientists, anything is possible. Oh my goodness. So thank you both again. And until we meet again, uh, this is Elaine Miller-Karis signing off for Resiliency Within on our Dear Voice America. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karis, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.